So, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the LSE this evening to this uh, event with uh, Alistair Darling. Uh, he is uh, certainly somebody who doesn't really need introduction, but I, I will briefly uh, rehearse uh, his illustrious career. He uh, has been an, MP, an Edinburgh MP since 1987, uh, a lawyer by training. He was educated at the University of Aberdeen. Uh, he's one of only three people to have served in the cabinet for the whole period between 1997 and 2010, where he was Chief Secretary to the Treasury, Secretary of State for Work and Pensions, Secretary of State for Transport, Secretary of State for Scotland, Secretary of State for the Department for Trade and Industry, and then finally Chancellor of the Exchequer. And he took on the latter uh, just as the full force of the financial crisis became apparent. And uh, although I, I don't think it met with universal approval of all of his colleagues at the time, he's now frequently credited with having been one of the first leading politicians in the UK to have appreciated the severity of that crisis. Uh, and, uh, and I'm sure we'll be exploring that in the conversation this evening. Uh, after taking uh, a break from front-range politics, he's now playing a leading role in the Keep Scotland in Britain campaign. And indeed, that may also be an issue that surfaces during our conversation. The way we're going to, to run it this evening is that I will uh, pose for the first part of uh, the evening, I'll pose a few questions to, to Mr. Darling and, uh, and then at some point when we feel there's a natural break in, in, in that we'll open it up to the audience and you'll have an opportunity. There are roving mics and I should, for those of you who are Twitterers, this is a technology rather beyond me, I should say the hashtag for this evening is LSE Darling. Um, uh, <laughs> and the, uh, might I also ask that you uh, turn off your uh, mobile phones, or at least have them on silent. I suppose you, if you're twittering, you need them on, but make sure they're on silent, please. So anyway, let's begin. We're going to, uh, the, the topic of this evening, of course, is the British economy, uh, past and future. And I'd like to just begin with a question about the past. And uh, if you think what's happened since... Uh, do you think the government, and, I, and I, I want to think of government over the, say, the 20-year period, not just the period of government uh, where you, you were in the cabinet, do you think that the government was sufficiently attentive to developments in the UK economy over the past 20 years? I'm thinking of rising inequality, something I think we, we saw and, and, and possibly one could say the government didn't pay as much attention to. Uh, one of your colleagues was often would say he was relaxed about people becoming filthy rich, I think was the phrase. I think he's but recounted it, since then. Yeah, okay. uh, and, but there are other things like the growth in financial services, the decline in manufacturing, these kinds of issues. Do you think, looking back, there, were, there, there was more could have been done by government to uh, respond to some of these developments? Well, the short answer is yes, of course. I and mean, it's self-evidently, you could always do more. But I, I think there, there are two distinct areas there that uh, yeah, I, I might just like to comment on. Firstly, on uh, inequalities, does it matter? Yes, it does. Uh, because I think a society where you have uh, a growing gap between uh, people who have high incomes and people who are not on low incomes, uh, it, it isn't just morally wrong, I mean, it is a moral issue as well. Uh, but I think it's economically very inefficient as well. You know, I, 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 I would find it difficult to live in a country where people were supremely indifferent to the fact that there were some people who were colossal, colossally wealthy and there's other people living in conditions of poverty, you know, some of which are far worse than anything you'd, you'd find in this country. Um, you know, yes, it is an issue. One thing I would say is that I think if you look back at the term of our government, 
for the first five or six years, we were, for understandable political reasons, very reluctant to say publicly we were actually redistributing wealth, even though we were. And it's one of the things that Gordon Brown did quite effectively before anyone actually noticed, uh, especially through the tax credit system, which is quite topical now since it's, there's a sort of slight rolling back there. Uh, but what we were trying to do is to put more money into the pockets of particularly uh, parents with children. So, but really, uh, and what we did, I suppose, is we, we arrested the increase in inequality and you know, child poverty, pensioner poverty came down. But you know, if you say to me, could we have done more, then yes. There's also the, the broader question that you're asking, which is, of course is topical now, uh, and that is um, in relation to the, the shape of uh, the British economy. And here I think you do have to go back several governments, which cover obviously Labour, Tory, Labour then Tory, Tory again. Uh, and I think that if you ask yourself, why is it that our manufacturing industry is, uh, you know, is apparently so, so much uh, of a lesser influence than it was, I think, frankly, that pass was sold about 30 years ago. Uh, and you know, one of the questions being asked just now is, does a government in the 21st century need an industrial policy? And my answer is unequivocally, yes, it does. What happened was, in the... 70s was a reaction against the state running things. The state used to run all sorts of things. You know, it had British Airways, it had the steel industry, it had sh uh, shipbuilding, and so on. And then, as a reaction towards that, probably starting the Thatcher government of '79, uh, then they, they took the view that basically what you had to do had you had to do was to get the macroeconomic environment right. And actually, that uh, that view of the economy lasted throughout the 18 years of the Thatcher government and most of. Uh, our 13 years in government. It wasn't until about 2008, which is really, you know, quite recently, that you know we were coming to the view that in you know today's world you cannot just simply stand back and hope that the market will produce what you need to produce. Now, a couple of th things I'd, points I'd like to make in, in relation to that. I'm not arguing you go back to the days when the state owned large pillars of the economy. I mean, you just can't do that now, and you wouldn't do it. I mean, it's ironic, because actually, um, you know, here's me having nationalised more banks than anyone else uh, you know, since. <laughs> but it's something I didn't actually want to do. Uh, and you know, I, if I was still a chancellor, I still wouldn't want to own a very large bank for a whole number of reasons. Uh, but I do think that government, you know, especially now, where the centre of economic gravity is moving remorselessly from the west to the east to the south, and where governments on the other side of the world, and actually not so far away from us, are you know, doing things that they wouldn't have maybe done in the past, uh, you can make a difference. So I'll give you an example. Airbus, for example. Uh, let no one tell you we're not good at engineering. If you take the Airbus A380, the big double-deck bus, its wings are made in Britain, with carbon technology funded by the government. Uh, Rolls-Royce enjoys tax credits. Its engines are Rolls-Royce. Its landing gear is British. A lot of what navigates it's in British is British. And actually, you know, the French contribution, a lot of it's the, the nice bits, the furnishings and things that you see in the sound system <laughs> and all that. But it is actually badged as made in France because that's where it gets glued together. Now, I make that point because actually I think there are things the government can do on that, on the creative industries, on you know, some of the you know, pharmaceuticals and so on, not, you know, not owning it, not handing out taxes, but they can make a difference. And I do actually think this is important because 
you know, the financial service industry will remain important to this country and we should not give it away. But, you know, here is where I part company with the present government. I do think the government has got a role. And in the present um, circumstances, if we don't exercise that role a bit more, I fear that you're going to see a great further switch to the, um, to the other side of the world. And, you know, we'll become even more dependent on the financial services industry. And that is not a good place to be. So it's a much longer answer than I intend to give in the future. But, you know, you're asking rather a... Yeah, a wide-ranging question. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, just go to the period when you, the, the banks uh, got into trouble. I mean, you had a, a brief period, you were mentioning, of six weeks of stability when you first became Chancellor. But, but when, 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 when did it... I guess that's quite a long honeymoon by normal standards. But, uh, it was, by Chancellor standards, at least at that time, seemed short. Um, when, did the, when did the severity of the recession uh, or the, the coming recession really first dawn on you? What, what were the things that you saw that really began to get you seriously concerned and, uh, and, and appreciate that this was going to be more than a, a short passing uh, event? Well, you're right. I mean, you know, when I was appointed as Chancellor in July, uh, June uh, 2007, you know, things looked absolutely fine. Uh, you know, of course, you know, look, looking around the world, there were warning signs, but they hadn't really been brought together anywhere, despite what you know, some people have subsequently claimed. There are people now who claim they saw it coming, they just forgot to tell anybody at the time. <laughs> um, but, you know, so there were warning signs. Uh, and then you went into Northern Rock and so on. Now, you know, I, I think I only once got seriously, seriously into trouble when I was Chancellor of the Exchequer, and that was when I gave an interview to The Guardian in the summer of 2008, and I said that, that I thought this was likely to be the worst downturn in 60 years, and that it would arguably more, be more profound and long-lasting than people thought. When I said that, uh, the substances hit the fan on a style that was deeply unpleasant. All I can say is I am very profoundly grateful to the people who caused all the trouble because no one would have remembered I'd have said it if, uh, <laughs> if they hadn't done what they, they did. But why did I come to that view? It was mainly because, it, although in the autumn you might have thought that if you looked at Northern Rock, this was perhaps a case of a bank that had just overreached itself. It was depending on uh, mainly America to raise money and so on. It was clear to me that when you looked at uh, who else was affected, and you saw HBOS, for example, which was a middle-ranking bank, it wasn't a small bank, and you realised that despite what was being said by some of our near-neighbour governments, their banks were being affected as well. You realised, you know, this was bigger than people might have thought, but the critical thing that was starting to go wrong was from the autumn of 2007, banks became increasingly reluctant to lend it to each other. That's something you've seen in Europe at the end of last year. Why was that? And the answer is because they were becoming aware that they were holding themselves a large amount of, um, I call them assets because that's what they were called in those days, um, of, of things they could not value. And, and, and increasingly began to wonder whether actually they had any value at all. You know, these sliced up you know, securities and so on, the subprime mortgages and so on. What was becoming clear to me though was, as each chief executive realized that he was sitting on this, it also occurred to him that if he was sitting on it, so was everybody else. And gradually, the banking industry realized they were all sitting on this stuff, and they became frightened of lending to each other, you know, because they, they worried about being paid back. Now, the thing eased over the Christmas period of 2007-8 because the central banks of our country, the Americans, Japanese, Europe, and so on, um, you know, made money available in a similar sort of way to the not on the same scale as um, Mario Draghi has done uh, with the ECB. It got slightly better in the spring of 2008, 
then people thought, well, when it comes to the reporting season, everybody will fess up and say, look, we've been sitting on all this stuff, but it's all right, we're valuing it now. It became clear they couldn't do it because it was so colossal. So you then had, uh, I remember when Bear Stearns collapsed about three days after my budget, which rather mucked up all the calculations that we'd made. Um, the situation got worse and worse over the summer of that year. RBS tried to raise money, HBOS tried to raise money, and this was being replicated in America and Europe and so on. And you know, I remember we had a meeting of Treasury officials in the summer, July I think it was, of um, uh, 2008, when it was quite obvious that the banking system was very badly fractured, and that it was inevitable that was going to fracture the economic growth. Uh, it was clear at that stage we were probably going into recession. You know, the timing wasn't clear, and um, that's why in, in, in August I was trying to prepare the way for. Um, you, know, I, I, you know, I think. I've learned as a politician, you know, we're always told we should tell the truth. It is a very hazardous occupation, believe you me, when you do this. Uh, but, you know, I think you, have, you do have to try and get people into the realising that this was no ordinary downturn. It wasn't to, confined to our country, it wasn't even regional, it was global. And so I think it was just a combination of events coming together. There was just, you know, a bad smell about it. And unfortunately, you know, this is precisely what's happened. The only thing I got wrong was 60 years. You know, it wasn't. It's far worse than, you know, <laughs> in modern times, really. And of course, government <coughs> acted in a number of ways, not least in the capital that was put into banks. Um, but when you look back at the, the things that you, you did in office at that time, are there things that, with hindsight, you wish you'd done differently, or do you think if you, you got it about right? Well, look, if you go. <laughs> The first thing that you know it would have been nice to have done differently is if regulators in every part of the world had seen what was going on, and in particular, if they had realised that you cannot simply uh, pass a bank as um, you know uh, as being healthy by looking at it alone. You've got to ask yourself, you know, what's it dependent upon? You know, what can go wrong that can affect the solvency of this bank? And you know, frankly, that that wasn't done properly. So there's that. That there's undoubtedly there was you know if you if you look at the way the economy was progressing in a, in a a lot of the last decade, you know, the, the imbalances we have between the West and the East were causing huge problems, and the, what, what, the growth, to a large extent, was being fueled by American consumers who were borrowing, you know, a lot of money. It was happening in this country, so there's, there's that. If you look at the crisis as a whole, um, yeah, you know, I think it would have been probably better if we'd nationalised Northern Rock before we did. Although, in my defence, it's easy to say that now when nationalising a bank hardly raises an eyebrow. At that time, this was big stuff. You also had very litigious American shareholders who were trying to say that we'd acted precipitately and so on. Um, I think, as far as the banking crisis is concerned, is you know, you know, people will always say you could have done something differently. All I would say is that you know, when we did the bailout in 2008, we did more than people were expecting and we did it more quickly than we were expecting. And if you want to road test the alternative to that, uh, just look at what has been happening with Greece over the last two and a half years where it seems to me that uh, the echo of uh, the Euroland has been consistently behind events. And even now, nobody believes that what they've come up with in Greece is going to last more than, I don't know, a few months. So actually, just pick up on that last point. So would you say that any notion of Britain ever joining the euro is, is now essentially finished? Well, you know, we can take bets on this if you want, but um, no, I, 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 really, I don't see us joining the euro, frankly, in anything like the foreseeable future. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm not against it philosophically, but I mean, what this has shown in those last you know, couple of years is that 
we showed two things. One is, if you're going to have a single currency, you have to accept the consequences. And the consequences are you increasingly pool not just your economic sovereignty, but that takes you to the politics as well. And there's no way, I think, that you know, Germans are not going to vote for a euro land any more than Greeks are going to vote for it. Uh, but even a sort of getting there halfway, if you like, with Germany helping Greece adapt, or who knows, Italy or Spain, which you know is now already what four days into it, like seven days into it, in default of the, this new treaty we've signed. Unless you accept those transfers, then I just don't think see how the thing is going to survive. And I, I, I honestly don't understand why. I do understand why that in politics you can't accept this, but I just think it's it's very difficult. So no, I I don't th I don't think this is uh, we're going to join. And if you want a, a sort of test of British opinion, uh, the Scottish National Party was in favour of joining the euro until the beginning of this year, uh, when it's now coming up with all sorts of alternatives to that. But I, it really tells you something that um, this issue is toxic in every part of the country. So, so one, one legacy of the crisis, of course, was the, 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 de the fiscal deficit. And um, one thing the current government has done is to uh, put in place the Office of Budget Responsibility. Um, do you think things would have, been, would have been helpful to have had that in, in place already during, say, the period when, when you were in government? Uh, would it have made any difference to the management of fiscal policy, do you think? Well, look, I, I, I'm, I'm not against an Office of Budget Responsibility. Um, I'm, it was Irvin passing. Its attempt at forecasting was no more successful than mine. So, uh, you know, it, it's, it's terribly difficult to forecast in the time of a crisis. It's actually difficult to forecast when things are stable. Uh, because in you know, the forecast, it's like the weather forecast. You know, uh, you'll be approximately right, but almost certainly precisely wrong. Uh, and of course, in something in a crisis, people want to know what your growth figures are going, are going to be. But I think anything that lends credibility to the process, and it's rather like the Monetary Policy Committee of the Bank of England. You know, when when, when we introduced that in, in 1997, it was controversial. But there's very few people around who'd argue you'd go back to the old days of the government fixing it, because it gives credibility that non-political people are deciding uh, what, what's appropriate. And actually, I think if you look at what's happening now with interest rates or quantitative easing, it helps that it's away from government. So the OBR, I think, is fine. But just remember, uh, you know, they've downrated their forecasts, I think, four times since 2010. It's not because they're bad people or negligent people. It's just it is very, very difficult to do it at this time. Um, so yes, it might have helped in terms of credibility, although, frankly, if people want to have a go at you, they wouldn't distinguish as to whether it was the OBR or whether it's... And what you're doing is, you know, I'm sure Mr. Osborne will find out. And coming back to growth and looking to the, to the future, if, if, you, if you were in office now, would you be thinking that it would be necessary to relax fiscal policy somewhat as, as, a, as a growth stimulus? Or, or well, would you look well, elsewhere to generate well, growth? The, the way I look at it is this. In the autumn statement, you know, which is took the place of the pre-budget report, that actually looked more like a pre-budget report than some of the ones I've seen in the past in terms of new announcements, um, the Chancellor had to announce he's borrowing £158 billion more than he expected to in 2010. And the reason for that, to a large extent, is because growth dried up in 2011. Now, we'll have to see what he's got to say about what we're looking forward to in the past. And it is that lack of growth uh, that is causing us problems. It is that lack of growth which is going to cause Euroland huge problems, because, of course, they've now got an institutional uh, requirement to actually exacerbate the situation. So, you know, I, you know, when the, you know, the, the government says we would borrow more, and that's daft when your borrowing is going up. Um, this is an argument which you know, many of you in this institution will know was fought out in the 1930s between Keynes and Hayek. You know, the, what, what, what do you do here? And I, I think, I, mean, I, I think, I, you know, I, could, I wouldn't have started in here. I, don't get me wrong, deficits have got to come down. 
debt's got to come down. I chose to half the deficit over a four-year period because I thought we could do it. It would have been very painful. We'd have had a lot of political trouble. But actually, if you look at where the government's ending up, it's not a million miles away from where I thought we were all going to end up. The difference is that they're not getting the growth. So I, I do think that... Um, that uh, I would be looking at things that would stimulate growth. I think there are three areas I would look at. One is in respect to the incomes of basic rate taxpayers and also in people on, on, on low incomes, whose incomes at the moment are being squeezed, if not cut. Uh, and you know, that is hitting spending power. You know, people in that position are just not going to go out and buy goods and services and so on. The second is young, uh, young people unemployed. That is a huge political problem and will become a greater political problem as well as being an economic problem. Uh, and the last thing that I think I would look at is, you know, you know here I, I've got a limited sympathy for Vince Cable on this, and that you know he did sign up for all this. But I think actually the signals that we send in terms of coming back to your earlier point as to where this country is going, I think some of the big infrastructure projects I think need to be looked at. I think the government needs to rethink its policy on Heathrow because that if we're not careful, is going to go into you know, a long-term decline. But I, I would, in addition to the big projects, I'd also look at some of the things you can do, like housing, for example, where consents are granted. It doesn't take long between you know, ordering a house and actually getting one. And if you want to sort of get people back into useful employment, you can do that. Now, obviously, George Osborne has made a point of saying, I will never change my policy, otherwise the markets will go against me. So he's put himself in a slightly different position to the one I would be in. And therefore, he will obviously need to look at where else he can get money from. But, you know, if he was sitting here, I can tell him uh, the easy pickings of long gone. And you don't have to go too far before you start hurting people. Uh, as you'll see this debate about child benefit at the present time, you know, a lot of people earning 43,000 quid a year don't actually think they were, you know, at the top end of the income scale. So, so one thing we've, we've done uh, here at the LSE is to set up a, a growth commission, which I'm one of the co-chairs. And uh, one, one message that we got from some of our initial hearings is that there's been a long-standing set of issues. You mentioned transport. In fact, you were Secretary of State for Transport, where we've sort of known what to do. I mean, think of airport expansion. It's no, it's no news that the UK, well, London in particular, is going to be starved of airport capacity. Many of the transport links between our major cities, there's no news that... But somehow there seems to be a kind of sclerosis in government that means these things don't get tr easily translated into progress. Is that a fair criticism and, it, and is it the case that that's going to be an impediment to generating growth? It is and it's, it's largely planning. Let, let me give you an example. In 2003 I opened the um, M6 expressway around Birmingham. Now, anyone who's been up that part of the world will know that this is the one you pay the toll and you can get around Birmingham half the time it takes to go through the middle of it. And I remember when I was opening it, you know, I did the usual round of interviews and there was one uh, woman from BBC said, and clearly rather more partisan than she might have been, she said, this must be a great day for the Labour Party. And I said, yes, indeed it was. Had Harold Wilson still been alive, he'd been very pleased indeed. And I said that for those of you who don't know, Harold Wilson was the Prime Minister between 1964 and 1970. That is when this thing was planned. And it didn't appear <laughs> until 2003. Um, now, I'm afraid... You know, when, when I, and I, I actually supported George Osborne's list of infrastructure projects um, that he announced uh, um, uh, last autumn. And one reason I supported them is because I distinctly remember announcing at least half a dozen of them myself. <laughs> and, and they are no more ready for completion or ready to go now than they were when I announced them. And there's a real problem in this country. Uh, you, know, uh, you know, we decide we need some infrastructure, but it takes years to get it. Now, we're up against countries on the other side of the world 
where, you know, frankly, you know, planning is not a great issue. In, in China, for example, the Mainay Airport in Shanghai and Beijing were both built within four years because their, their planning consent process is rather different, shall I say, to the one that we have in this country. But if you take Heathrow, which we looked at this 10 years ago, there's a perfectly good serviceable white paper which we produced in uh, 2003, and the issues have not gone away. And the idea that you can sort all this thing out by building a new airport in the middle of the Thames you know, which is going to cost a fortune. Airlines will not pay those the charges. They will say, well, if that's the choice. Let's go to Schiphol or Paris and so on. And the one thing that is going to defeat this project that defeated everybody else has looked at airports in the Thames is it happens to be the sort of the equivalent of the M6 of, um, for, for migrating geese. Uh, and, you know, you cannot land large aeroplanes if you're having to negotiate, you know, very large numbers of very large geese who are flying around you. It just isn't going to get built. And I know the difficulties in Heathrow, and as anyone living in West London, I do understand that there are difficulties. But if we don't do this, it isn't just people who are going to fly around the world and the rest of it. The M4 corridor depends to a large extent on Heathrow. Uh, you know, if people have got houses in West London, a large amount of it, the prices have been kept up by Heathrow. It employs, I think it's nearly 100,000 people in recollection, one way or another, depend on that airport. Take it out of West London which is what moving it somewhere else ultimately means, and you will make a huge impact. Uh, and you know, this is an example of where, you know, I was saying earlier, there are some industries that we do have a competitive advantage in, financial services. One, actually, Heathrow brings a lot of money into this country. Even people who don't actually get off, come out of the airport, they transit through the thing, and they do generate a lot of employment. And I do think this is something that the government's going to have to look at. We have to make our minds up, you know, what are we going to do? It's not the only example. And by the way, High Speed 2, the thing that's called High Speed 2 just now, you know, it is very nice to get to Birmingham 10 minutes before we presently do. Um, but, but, you know, it, it is no substitute for Heathrow. And actually, when you get to Birmingham, you still need to deal with the communications within that city and indeed other cities. So, yet you're absolutely right. Planning, the lack of drive that we have there, I could mention a whole lot of things, our, our power stations need replacing and so on. This is something where I think actually the government could send a very, very powerful signal. But already you see, you get the clash of localism, which is, means people saying, no, not in my backyard, and the strategic necessity. Now, we have to resolve that. Mm -hmm. and, and, and let me try an, an, another thing, which is, I, I've heard it said that there's a concern that we're losing uh, the perception of an enterprise culture in, in, in the UK. I mean, people talk about banker bashing as just a sort of backhand way of trying to, uh, if you like, denigrate wealth creation of a sort. Now, of course, whether it was wealth creation or not is an open de debate, but the whole question of whether we're sending out a perception, uh, whether the perception of the UK is we're not as open for business as we were in a prior period. Do you subscribe to that view, or is it the view that's... Up, up to a point. Um, it's, it is true. Um, that if you go to America or I was in Hong Kong recently, their perception of Britain has changed. I was actually surprised. And ironically, the, the thing that was sort of driven um, that was, to a large extent, what happened to Fred Goodwin. Now, this is the most unlikely hero, uh, you know, f in this country, uh, for obvious reasons. I and mean, I, you know, I don't carry any flag for him. He's the author of his own misfortunes. I told him at the time that if he insisted on holding on to his pension, it would end up in tears. But the fact that you know, the government went along with stripping him of, him of his knighthood in a way that was inconsistent with the current rules, because you can only lose it if you, you know, you're imprisoned or you're, you're disciplined. Whether you, whatever you think of him, the rules were changed. 
and therefore a country that believes in the due process and believes in the rule of law, I think that's a bad signal to send out. On bankers generally, it is perfectly understandable why the public, especially if you are being squeezed, and a lot of my constituents in Edinburgh actually work for these banks and don't earn vast sums of money, are very angry about what happened. It's understandable when someone is apparently paying themselves huge bonuses for not a lot, or in some cases the more you lose, the more you get. It is terribly difficult to justify that. My only point about the financial services is, is not really about bonuses, is that do remember this is an industry that employs a million people in this country, and it is something where a lot of towns and cities depend on it, my own home city included. I'm not sure that we, you know, I think the world is looking at Britain saying, you know, they're anti-enterprise, but I do think, you know, signals do actually matter, and, and I would not argue that, you know, we're going to be banned from saying that excessive bonuses are a bad thing. I just think we need to, you know, criticise where it's needed, but also where we're good at something, or where we actually think it's of value to our country, then we should be ready to say that. Uh, my broader point on growth is that I think the signals we would send in terms of, you know, yes, we are going to be serious about replacing our energy sources, um, you know, our infrastructure and so on, I think that would all send a, send a positive uh, signal as well. There's other things too, like the immigration cap. You know, this which is hitting a number of universities, you know, the, the, you, you know, having difficulty getting people in, or, or the messages we send to students coming from outside this country, which are, the argument of which, of course, has been around since the 1960s. Uh, I do think it's important on the signals we send. I want this to be an open, vibrant economy where we welcome people to come and do business. Um, we just sometimes have to think about what we say. But believe me, trying to defend bankers is a hopeless task. And I used to find it especially galling when I had to defend them uh, when they were earning several times more than I'm ever likely to earn and weren't prepared to even put in an appearance on the Today programme. So there you are. And ha and ha so, so in that context, how do you think now of the 50 pence tax rate? Because some people will point, point to that now. Did you, when you implement it, think of it as a temporary measure? Or do you think it's now going to be part of the UK fiscal landscape for... No, I mean, when I introduced it, I said it was temporary and for the duration of this crisis. And I, I think, you know, politically, it, I, mean, I don't think we'll remove it from the budget in two weeks' time. But, you know, if, if we really are all, all in this together, if your first tax cut is the 50 pence rate, I mean, I think you are, you know, you're in politics. And some, you want to think about seriously about, you know, whether you've got a better future somewhere else. Um, so, but I, I've always said that your tax rates have to be kept competitive vis-a-vis -vis the countries in which you are basically competing with, uh, which is, you know, and, and I defended, you know, I've been part of a government that had a top rate of tax of 40p for, uh, you know, for 10 years, and my views haven't changed on that. Uh, and, you know, my guess is that it will come down at some stage. Uh, but, uh, you know, again, for a country like ours, where we are very dependent on inward investment, you have to make sure that your tax rates are, you know, are generally competitive. So I'd be surprised if this won't, it won't go, I don't think, in three weeks' time. Um, they may want to say something about it. However, you know, if, if the alternative is a mansion tax, you know, uh, it's, you know, whenever you come up with a new tax, I think your hope is you're never around when someone tries to implement it because it's, they're easier announced than they are implemented. So, so one, one final question, and I'll throw it open to the floor. But I can't—you were—you were surrounded by economists in the Treasury, I'm guessing, giving you all sorts of advice. And uh, you, I don't know what view of economists you took by the end of the crisis. Do you have any advice for the economics profession from the uh, from your experience as Chancellor? Do you, do you think we're all a waste of time? Well, simply to like, try and reach agreement or something. Uh, um, <laughs> no, it, you know, the, the economists are no different from anybody else. They've all got all get their view, got your views. Um, it, it is sometimes trying when people give you um, excellent academic advice, which you know doesn't actually pass 
what I call the Tesco test. You know, you try it out an ordinary person and see what they think about it. But you know, I think you know, you know, from this institution of all, this would not be a great place to launch an attack on the, the profession. Uh, but um, I think that many people would be very pleased if you did. Well, it, it is an option of a quick way out that way. <laughs> Last time I was here, I came through that. Um, so you know, of course, there is an absolutely essential part of it. But you know, the, you know, it, it's sometimes um, an overly academic approach. Uh, to uh, something can uh, you know, sometimes be counterproductive. I mean, I think sure we can think of many examples of where that's been done. Yeah. Very good. So I think what we'll do now is take some, some questions from the floor. Can I ask you to keep your questions reasonably brief, to say who you are, and to wait for a microphone to travel to you? Uh, it was that little group just on the top right that first caught my attention. Um, there'll be two mics, and I'll sort of take one after the other. So why don't you go up the back, and we'll take someone from this side afterwards, okay? Start off there. Hi, I'm Ramin, member of public. Could you uh, comment on quantitative easing, please? Okay, answer them one time. I think that's <coughs> okay, <good>. right. <laughs> um, quantitative easing must be a good thing because I announced it uh, two years ago. Um, <laughs> let me say this. Firstly, uh, you know, I think it is part of um, the armory, if you like, that the central bank needs once interest rates come to uh, such a level as they cease to any of the normal effects you would have. When we started this in 2009, it was part of a range of measures uh, designed to stabilize the banking system. That was the main purpose of it, in the same ways the European Central Bank is doing that now. It has subsequently been used last autumn and then again more recently. My concern about it now is that the declared aim is that uh, the bank is putting this money into the banking system in the hope that it is then lent out onto the high street. Now, I don't believe it is. And I think this is something the government does need to look at. I know that it's got this thing called its credit easing program, which they announced last autumn, and which is supposed to come in, I think, very soon, actually, but I'm not sure how it's going to work. But at the moment, you know, you know, there is a, I think there is something of a problem where, on the one hand, we're wanting banks to be safer by making them hold more capital, telling them to be more careful who they lend their money to and all that. It means that the price of credit is going up and it's going to be more constrained. On the other hand, we're putting money into the system, hoping that it will get out. Um, and I really think that, is, that the government needs to take a little bit more, um, a more proactive approach in ensuring that the money that is coming into the system actually finds its way out of the bank vaults into the wider economy, because otherwise it will not have the effect, same effect as cutting interest rates. There's no point you know, simply transferring it one, one bit of the banking system to another. It won't have the economic effect unless it actually finds its way out into the wider economy. Now, maybe in the budget, when the Chancellor announces more details of the credit easing, we'll see more about this. Uh, but at the moment, um, <coughs> uh, you know, I'm doubtful about that, but <coughs> in terms of philosophy, um, you know, I remember at the time people said it was the last act of a desperate government. Uh, well, if it is, there must be a lot of desperate governments around because a lot of people are doing it. Uh, I, I am less, I am less concerned at the moment about how you unwind it. Uh, I, in fact, I'm looking forward to the looking forward to the day when we can actually begin to unwind these things. But I think it, as a policy, it's okay. But the practice of it, I'm not sure it's working. Okay, I'm going to go to the left. Could you pass along to someone you can see there? Yeah. Everyone should be able to get an invention. So. Hi there. My name is Noah, and I'm from the Queen Mary Labour Society. Um, I wonder what you think about the current um, labour economic plan because you said when you left office that labour needs a credible economic plan. So do you think Ed Miliband's and Ed Bull's economic plan is credible? And if so, um, why do you think they're do so, doing so badly in the polls? Uh, 
Right, well, firstly, as the economic policy is still the same as the one I left, yes, the answer was the first one was yes. Um, the, you know, I say this for the benefit of anyone who's listening from outside, twittering or otherwise, you know, I'm not proprietorial about this. As we go through this parliament, you know, you know, I suspect the opposition and the government's economic policy will adapt to take account of uh, circumstances. And the big question that I think is going to face us over the next couple of years ago is the growth question, which I, I referred to earlier on. Um, on the your, your political part of your question, if you like, you know, I, you know, I think that uh, there's no doubt that we paid a heavy price for both being, you know, uh, divided on what our approach would be about reducing the deficit in the back end of uh, our government in 2009-2010, and there's no doubt also that the present government was hugely successful in persuading people that A, the country was the same as Greece, which was mendacious on any view, and B, that it was all our fault, that borrowing was built up because of profligacy and so on. We were doing that while we had a six-month leadership campaign where obviously we spent more time talking to each other rather than talking to the, the population at large. And that is something that, frankly, you know, we have to turn around. You know, in the same way as you know, the last government, the last Conservative government, had, you know, when, when they had the, the problems of the exchange rate mechanism and you know, Black Wednesday and all that sort of stuff in 1992, it took them a long time to recover from that. Now, I'm afraid you just have to be realistic about it. I mean, there's no point pretending it's not an issue. It is an issue. Um, you know, by the time of the next election, you know, there may be a different set of circumstances. And the question that people will then ask is, well, looking, looking at the two potentials, the present government, leaving aside the complication of the coalition or you know, a, a Labour government, which of the two have got the most compelling and credible policy, uh, which you know, both sides will need to be in possession of. Uh, and, you know, you know, I'm quite sure that, you know, that uh, you know, as, as we go on, the policy you know, that we have, uh, obviously the dividing line will not be the rate of reduction of the deficits. It's actually, as I said, the present government is now doing the same as, uh, as we're doing, but you know, the, the policies will adapt and you know, that, that's how it should be. I'm going to work the uh, microphone guys quite hard, and you're going to come down the front now. I'm going to sort of go front and back, left and right, so you'll be well exercised by the end of it. There we are. Come down the front. This gentleman here, as you, yeah, you caught my attention. Maybe. You want me to come down the front? No, no. I want you. I wanted him no, to I come down. You, you can um, stay where you are. I'm Dan Pilson. I'm a retired civil servant, very junior, um, before I retired. Um, back in the 50s and 60s and 70s. We had something called Butskillism, based on the names of um, Hugh Gateskill and Rab Butler, who were Chancellor's Exchequer. And essentially, they believed that you could manage the economy by a touch on the tiller, um, purchase tax regulator, tweaks in short. And the um, recurring cartoon image of the last 60 years has been of a desperate Prime Minister and Chancellor at the helm of a ship, often hitting an iceberg. Um, do you think that the Labour Party develops an over-strong belief in the ability of government to manage an economy at all, um, and its faith in touching the tiller, as it were, was too strong and tested to the extreme by the events of 2007 onwards? And is there anything, by the way, which you would have done differently with benefit of hindsight between 2007 and 10? I mentioned you know, a couple of things we would have done differently. But I, I think, I mean, I, you know, I, of course I understand butskillism. I may have been at school at the time, but I do remember the, you know, the, the, the term. 
I think what's different is our economy in the 50s and 60s was, compared with what it is now, was relatively closed. You know, the, the, the ability of government to touch tillers and so on was, you know, rather greater than it is now. Our economy now is pretty open. Uh, and, you know, you know globalisation, you know, you talked about that in the 1950s and 60s, you know, it would have been terribly difficult to, glo the glo if there was globalisation, it was confined to only, you know, one small part of, of the globe. You know, it's just, the, the world is just different from then. And, <coughs> um, you know, I think you know governments can make a difference, you know, you know, the, but we are totally interdependent of each other. Of course, it makes a difference what you do, whether or not you have the right um, in economic environment in which people work. But where I think I might take issue with you, unless I've misunderstood you, surely 19, 2007 to 2010 actually showed that if government doesn't do something, it can make one hell of a difference. You know, you know, you know. Pe people have subsequently said to me, "Why didn't you let RBS collapse?" And there's quite a simple answer to that. Look what happened t 12 months before that, when you had Northern Rock, people queuing around the block, even being told their money was guaranteed and it was safe. People would say, I know that, uh, but I still want it out. If the largest bank in the world had shut its doors and its cash machines went off, and remember, on the morning of the 7th of October 2008, when I was phoned up by the, chief, the, the chairman, he said, when I said, how long have you got, thinking he might say two or three days, he said, we're going to run out, run out of money in two or three hours. Now, no one's going to tell me that governments couldn't make a difference, which is my complaint about the Euro governments, which could have made a huge difference, actually, they bothered to do it. But I think if you look at the broader economy now, as I said earlier, and I don't want to repeat myself because lots of people want to ask questions, I think the model that we use is entirely different from the 50s and 60s, and certainly by the 1970s. But I do think that governments can actually make a difference in terms of you know, the infrastructure they provide, in terms of you know, some of the incentives or some of the, the encouragement they can give to industries where we've got a competitive advantage. I do think that can make a difference. And that's why I think that the, you know, if you look at the, the, the economic models that are followed, and there is usually is a consensus in the political parties about these, despite that the more they say there is, it usually means there is. Um, you know, there was a different one in the 60s and 70s, there was a different one in the 80s and 90s. And what I'm saying is I think there needs to be a different one now. Uh, Toby Chimbis, uh, We Care Foundation. Uh, there's been a lot of debate that we're following in the path of uh, Japan and it really haven't um, sort of dealt with the, the banks really. And you talked about equality um, and the, the kind of inequality that's really occurring. And it can't be right that the you sort of let the banks sort of scot-free without any um, sort of strings attached. And now they're sort of still... Um, doing getting up to the same sort of paying massive bonuses when really the taxpayer has actually bailed out um, and their bonus. Okay, <coughs> okay we, it, 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 it was a Japan question and it was a bank's question. Um, I mean, it's, it's not true there were no strings attached. However, I just make this point to you that whatever a bank, you know, if you take the top bankers just now, whatever they earn, even if you halved it and halved it again, but people would think, well, that's still too much. Um, now, you know, there, there is an issue in relation to banks. Uh, there are very few industries in the world where employers almost collude in paying their employees more and more money. And the only place they used to do that was in the football industry, and even now they're beginning to realise that paying someone a large sum of money for sometimes not doing very much is not such a good idea. But in banks, you know, they're still doing it. And it's not helped by the fact that if you go to America or Asia, and you talk about excessive pay or bonuses, they look at you blankly because they don't actually think it's a problem. You know, they're in a completely different position to us. I do think 
that we need to look at the amount, you know, the industry needs to look at the amount that it pays in, in relation to uh, you know, the, the total remuneration as well as bonuses, which sometimes, and the whole idea of a bonus is it's something special, something extra. In this particular industry, it is usually more than someone is paid in their base salary, and it can often distort their behaviour sometimes in a very negative way. However, it's a difficult thing for one country to sort on its own when you've got an industry that is extremely uh, global. Um, you know, and, you know, in relation to you know, RBS, for example, where you know, I, I was there when you know, the current chief executive was hired, but I had to get somebody who was capable of running this bank and trying to retrieve the very large sums of money that the British taxpayer is, is exposed to. On your Japanese point, um, it, I'm sh maybe people who know better than me here, you know, I do understand the concept of the lost decade. But something depressing is if you ask Japanese people why it's happened, nobody really knows why it's happened. It's just there. What my suggestion, my, my analysis of it is that really Japan is an object lesson where people totally lose confidence in recovery and they just respond accordingly. You know, they behave like human beings and say, well, I'm not going to spend money, I'm not going to, you know, do, do new things. And I think that actually is quite a real risk in this part of the world if we're not careful. At best, uh, the greater risk is that um, it all goes terribly wrong again and it won't be too much uh, to, uh, to, to get it going. You know, we're talking about banks. We actually did, to a large extent, sort out some of the rubbish in our banks in 2008. That did not happen in a large part of continental Europe. The problems are still there. I'm going to go top right again. Um, just pa pass it along, yes. Pass, pass. Hi there. Um, my name's Edward Scott. I work in the uh, Library in the House of Lords. Uh, I've got a question about how to get um, money lent to businesses to get them to grow again. Uh, the idea is being floated that we should take advantage of the fact that we own uh, large chunks of the banking industry, create a new entity which um, the government manages to lend to, uh, to companies to, to ensure growth. Is that idea viable and is it something that the government should do? Well, I'm not, you know, I, I only know what I've read in this leaked uh, document. If it just seems to me that what Vince Cable's on about is using the high street network of RBS to, you know, to pay money out, uh, you know, which, you know, you, you might argue you, you, you can do that. If he's going further than that and saying, well, actually, we're going to lend more money, it, mu it must mean, therefore, two things. One is the government's going to change the lending criteria, and otherwise it'll be easier to get a loan. But it also must mean the government's prepared, prepared to stand behind these loans if they go wrong, uh, because somebody's got to do it. And obviously, you know, um, it does, you know, for this purpose, even you said RBS was doing it, who is RBS in practice? Well, it's us, because you know, we own it. Um, I have my doubts about it. I mean, China has done something similar. In 2008, they got their banks to um, lend money, you know, quite extensively to individuals, to businesses, to local authorities. Uh, and, you know, as one Chinese minister said to me, we don't have any trouble persuading our bank managers to lend money. Uh, and I know, but I notice now they do have a real problem because a lot of the regional government can no longer afford to repay this money, which is now becoming due, and they're talking about rolling it over and so on. I would be nervous about getting ourselves into a situation where if this is what he's suggesting, the criteria so changes that you end up lending a lot of money which you, you may come to regret in years to come because it all goes bad. Um, I would prefer, you know, and I think you know, the government may have something in this credit easing. If you borrow money on the strength of the British government and then lend it out, you can do it at lower rates. But somebody has got to assess at some stage whether or not something is a good risk or not. 
And certainly in my experience, yes, there are many examples where people are not getting money uh, that you know, you, you, the banks really you know, they should step up to the mark. But you do come across cases where you think, well, you know, um, I can see exactly why HBOS is bust, for example, uh, you know, in some of the property development and so on. So you know, it really depends on what you're trying to do. But I don't think it's a panacea. I also, by the way, I think you need to look at the other side of it. Until you've got businesses confident that there's going to be growth, then you're not going to borrow more money to hire more people or to build new plant and machinery or whatever. Uh, you know, I think the two things need to go together. And I think the lack of confidence is you know, part of the problem we've got at the moment. Right, let's go up. We're going to go up to the, to the left. Um, go halfway and then pass it into the middle of the row. Stop there and into the middle of the row. Yeah. Hi, uh, Chloe Sorovich, Lambeth CLP. Um, do you think that the UK has anything to learn from the German economic model? Well, it's certainly got something to learn in terms of manufacturing, because the Germans managed to hold on to their manufacturing in a way that we didn't. Now, I think there's all sorts of reasons for it. Whether or not it's their structure, um, I don't know. I mean, I th I've always thought that um, there is something in the argument that uh, a lot of German companies were family-owned long after we stopped having family-owned um, industries, and the owners therefore felt they owned it. And if you compare and contrast that with, say, take an extreme example, Cadbury's chocolate was built, obviously built up by the Cadbury family, and they cared deeply about it, and there was sort of the model of Victorian, uh, you know, um, uh, entrepreneurs, if you like, you know, they cared about their employees. When Cadbury's was eventually, you know, taken over, a large number of its shares were owned by people who bought it for the purposes of the takeover, who, you know, probably the people who were buying the shares had never been here, probably didn't know what Cadbury's was particularly, had no interest in it whatsoever. And I think, you know, that sort of culture does lead to short-term decisions being taken, the reluctance to, to invest on something that may take a return, you know, it may take a number of years to get a return on. And so I think that, that aspect of Germany is quite important. I mean, of course you could say, if you look at some of our great British companies, uh, you know, who, who, you know, who owned you know, um, industries in the Victorian times, there's no doubt that they were as guilty as anybody else in neglecting to invest properly, uh, you know, especially after the First World War and after the Second World War, and we paid a heavy price for that. Uh, now, you can't roll the clock back, but I do think you know, the sense of ownership, the sense of commitment for a longer period than you know, the next quarter is something that, uh, that uh, I think we do need to look at. It's something that I think, you know, actually both governments have looked at. We looked at how you actually achieve it is something that I don't have a ready answer for. Uh, and by the way, in case you think, uh, you know, that, that despite you know, what you sometimes hear from the Germans, you know, and you think, you know, they sometimes were critical of what we did in 2008, they absolutely poured money into their motor industry in 2008. They put more money into their economy than we did uh, because they were determined they were not going to lose the competitive advantage they had in, you know, <coughs> not just motor industry, but the spin-off that goes with it. Uh, so, you know, yeah, I think there are things that we can learn. Uh, the whether now, when so much has happened, you could ever go back, to, you know, you can't plant a, f you can't reinvent the Canterbury family or anything like that for obvious reasons, but I do think it's something that we need to look at. Just a quick supplement, supplemental on that. One other thing that people point out about Germany is they have a much better system of skills and apprenticeship. Yeah. Is that something you think the UK should be focusing on as well? Yeah, well, one of the things they've got is that they persuade sections of the, the, the industry is much more organized than ours. I mean, it's rather like, the, you know, the old, the old um, trades and guilds that we used to have. Uh, and that the German companies readily accept that there is a cost in training, you know, engineering apprentices, for example. Uh, so, you know, people talk about, you know, us, our labor costs being too high. The Germans, the labor costs are high, sometimes for very good reasons. Again, this is a pass that was sold 30 years ago. 
where you know basically firms didn't think it was their job to train people up. The good ones do. And Rolls-Royce, for example, which undoubtedly has a, you know, a worldwide leadership here, they do and always have recognised that unless they train people, no one else is going to do it for them. But for a lot of companies, I'm afraid they didn't do it. Uh, and you know, we, successive governments, especially in the, the 80s and 90s, have tried to find elaborate ways of not putting burdens on business because that is a bad thing in inverted commas, and then trying to cobble together, you know, training and apprenticeships and so on. And uh, you know. The, some of the best training is actually on the job and you know I think that is something that we lost sight of. Right, down to the front here on the right please. Thank you. Um, my name is Yan Ting from China Business News. Um, I have three simple questions. First, um, do you think China should come to Europe's rescue? And second, um, <laughs> in your view, um, what will be the end game of the Eurozone crisis and uh, should should Greece take a sabbatical from the Eurozone? Third, um, what do you think of uh, China's intention to invest in um, UK's infrastructure sector? Thank you very much. Okay, I'll try and <laughs> you'll obviously go far as a journalist if you only got three simple questions to ask. <laughs> um, firstly, the role of China in the development of the global economy is pivotal. One of the things that I was encouraged by in the beginning of 2009 was I remember you know, when there's, a, there's an annual exchange between the Chinese government and the British government, it's trade orientated and we take it in turns, we go there, they come here and so on. They were here in 2009 and they were engaged in a way that I had not seen in you know, the three previous years. They, uh, like everybody else, were terrified about what was happening within the economy. They, they have always wanted, as you know, to become involved, more involved in world institutions like the IMF and so on. But they recognised that they had to be, you know, contributors to this debate as well. Um, and you know, there is this sort of thing that I always found with both China and India. They can, at one and the same time, being saying, "Look, we are now major economies. We want the top table, rightly so." And then, and of course, you say, "Well, how about?" like the environment, well we're developing countries, you know, you lot sort this problem out and then when you have then, you know, we'll come along and, and do things. But I welcomed that development. I was very sad that by the end of that year, I remember it was the finance ministers meeting, the G20 finance ministers meeting which we held in St Andrews in Scotland, they, both China and India had completely bailed out of it, you know, the crisis had gone and they were just withdrawing. So I just make that general point, I think China must be part of the solution here, particularly when you're talking about as I said, th th this problem you've got with um, you know, ch China, the imbalances between China and the United States, for example, they've got to be engaged, they've got to, to be alive to this. Uh, in relation to, which brings me on to the China's interest in Europe, um, am I surprised that the Chinese took one look at the, you know, the um, rescue fund last November and said, uh, we'll come back next year and see how you're doing? No, I'm not. Uh, because the obvious thing is, how come Germany, which has got plenty of money actually to be able to contribute to this if it wanted to, it's not going to do it? Why should China be putting its money into it? And you know, you were asking about how they handled this thing. It's been a, it's been a series of disasters actually. We first tried to sort it in the last finance meeting of the European Minister ever went to in the interregnum between us losing power and the new government being formed. And we put together, after several hours, a smallish um, rescue fund uh, as provide cover, frankly, for the uh, European Central Bank to start buying bonds and so on. The money never materialised. They then had two other attempts where it was too little. They were chasing events. Uh, and now, although there is, there is a fund, 
it is a virtual fund and it enjoys many of the characteristics of the subprime mortgage market in the United States. You, you know, you know, it's, it's what they say in the trade leverage, except it's not quite clear who's doing the leveraging. Uh, so, you know, I, do, I don't think that's satisfactory and it's certainly not big enough if a big country got in, into the, the state of affairs. Um, do I, I, of course, you know, I welcome you know, cross-border investment. Uh, but, you know, and, and I have no problem with sovereign wealth funds, but the one proviso, you have to play by the rules. You know, it has to be, you know, a commercial endeavour, and, you know, there's always going to be questions about that. Um, and, you know, not this particular one, but, you know, sovereign wealth funds, full stop. Um, on the, uh, uh, your last point about um, the sabbatical of Greece, um, my view is that, it's an obvious one, Greece should never got in there in the first place, but it is. I think a disorderly departure would be a disaster, and it would not be confined to Greece. It would spread, and it wouldn't stop at the, just another small country. Uh, people would start looking at some of the bigger countries and saying, you know, fundamentally they've got problems as well. Um, even an orderly departure in the current climate, I think, would lead to difficulties, uh, because, uh, you know, suppose you were able to help them out. <coughs> just think of the, the practicalities. You know, could you honestly keep secret the fact that Greece was going to leave the euro on Monday morning while you rustled up a new currency and you put in all the measures to stop you know, there being a complete panic and meltdown? You know, it just wouldn't happen. And the minute people thought this was going to happen, what would the reaction be in Italy, Spain, Portugal? They would all say, hold on, if it can happen there, it can happen in other places. So I think in the current climate, I think, uh, I think you know, the, the, to this extent the Eurozone is right that it should do its best to try and help Euro Greece adapt. But I conclude on this point. How on earth can you think it is a credible solution to visit upon a country something that even if it works, even if the Greeks do every last thing they're being asked to do, in eight years' time it will have a debt of 120% of its GDP. You know, this is in a fragile economy, which does not, you know, with due respect, doesn't have a, a great track record on these things. It is simply not credible. And indeed, the Eurozone knows it. They know they're going to be short and they're going to be coming back. Uh, and, and until you get a credible solution for Greece, I go back to my point about our bailout. It, these bailouts only work if you do something that people say, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, even if it doesn't make sense for the rest of the time or anything like that, but it has to make sense for at least a credible period of time. And uh, no, it's not doing that. Uh, which is why, you know, when people say, will the Eurozone be in the same form as it is now in five years' time? Well, you know, a year ago, 18 months ago, I would have said yes. I'm not so sure now. So just following on that, so is your sense that the politicians of the Eurozone are, in a sense, delusional in believing that they have solved the problem? It's like everything else in Europe. You know, a lot of it's all compromises. It's all about, you know, buying time. Uh, you know, I understand fully that if you read the German tabloid press, you know, it's not surprising that German people are not, as a whole, terribly well disposed towards Greek people because the picture they have is one that is not entirely flattering. And I understand entirely the politics of this. You know, if you know, especially you know, if you're a German politician, you've got an election next year, actually saying, look, we're going to give lots of money to Greece and so on. It's it's not easy to do it, but. You know, I think the other question is, Germany has done exceptionally well out of the euro. In fact, the last thing Germany wants is the Mark. You know, that's, you know, that wouldn't really help the manufacturing industry, I wouldn't have thought, just at the present time. But, uh, you know, I, I think that, you know, that what the, if you ask the Eurozone members, they are buying time for Greece. I honestly don't know, because I cannot get anyone to explain to me how the treaty they have signed up to, which means that a country that is in a recession is effectively going to have to exacerbate the situation and do everything that in the 1930s people thought actually is a bad thing. How on earth that helps you, I do not know. 
and when actually, as I said to you earlier on, within days, you get you know, a right of centre Spanish government, which is signed up to austerity, and the day afterwards, I think, uh, the Prime Minister said, by the way, we're not going to meet the criteria, and it doesn't apply to us. I mean, it really, it doesn't really encourage you, does it? <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're going to go top left now, um, so if somebody could indicate uh, that they wish to yeah, yeah, pass down there. Yeah. Hi. Um, the former Icelandic Prime Minister, Geir Harder, has just uh, gone on trial for, his, for negligence for his part in the financial crisis. Imagine we were to do the same in Britain. Who would you have the Metropolitan Police arrest? Uh, Gordon Brown, Adair Turner, Mervyn King, or you? It, 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 won't, it won't surprise you to know that, I, I, that whilst I'm not a great fan of the former Icelandic Prime Minister, um, I, I, I wonder whether the criminal law is the best way of uh, dealing with these things. Um, uh, you know, I've also noticed what he's been saying about me along the way. I mean, the, the Icelandic government was very irritated when we froze um, the, uh, the assets of uh, one of their banks here. Uh, and we had to use, because it's the only legislation we had, legislation that's contained within a terrorism act. And I understand the sensitivity of it. All I would say is that when I spoke to the said Prime Minister and asked him you know, to stop removing money from this country, you know, the money that was in this bank, because you know, it was mean that we would have to underwrite it. Um, he said to me that he, he wasn't fully abreast of what was happening, could we negotiate? And, you know, I said, no, we couldn't. And I see that now, apparently, I was acting rather unreasonably. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I think the Icelandic, the, I think the Icelandic government was getting into trouble. And it, it sort of illustrates the problem of what happens when you have a small country, which, you know, basically its banks develop out of all proportion to what the country's got. I mean, Ireland had something similar. Uh, but in Iceland, I don't know if you're aware of it, there's something they had a Truth and Reconciliation Committee, and I think you will find, and this isn't trying to defend me or any other of my co-defendants uh, that you named, um, though incidentally, I mean, if we could start you know, widening the net, um, you know, how's about my successor who said that um, the Irish model of regulation is one that we should choose to emulate? Uh, that was in 2006. Um, you know, so I, I, I just think you, you need to realise that there's an awful lot more going on in Iceland than just the management of the economy. Uh, you know, there was a lot of other things that, um, uh, that uh, you need to look at. But by being a former lawyer, I will go no further at this stage. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Um, we're going to kind of go in the middle here because I think I've been top and bottom. So perhaps find somebody in the, the middle of the pack. I'm Vlad Tomes from Sam Langton Boys School in Kent. I was wondering, would have state spending, instead of cutting, been more effective in creating growth in the economy? State spending? Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, let me take a step back. If you, you know, if you do the big question just now, the deficit, how did it arise? Um, and the reason it arose is that when the economy started going into a steep decline in 2008, we maintained spending, as indeed did the Americans, the Chinese, most other countries. Uh, it was a classic Keynesian response because you know, the government cuts back when everybody else is cutting back, nobody's spending, the risk is you go into a depression. I'm always clear that once the economy started to grow again, you had to do something about it. And you know, I don't believe that it is axiomatic that if you cut public spending, the private sector will step in to take its place. It's more likely when the economy is growing, for obvious reasons, but when the economy is not growing, as indeed you know, it was growing in 2010, then it's, it stopped again, then the risk is that you then go back into recession. Now, I, don't, I would be surprised if this country goes back into recession as defined by two quarters of successive negative growth. 
Um, I think it will, is more likely to bump along the bottom. It might, you know, zigzag a bit. Uh, but um, I'd be surprised if it did. Uh, but my worry has always been in this country that if you take too much money out of the economy too quickly, then it does crash the recovery. Now, in my defence of my position, I can tell you that, as I said, the economy actually grew more strongly in 2010 than we thought. It then stopped in 2011. We don't know what's going to happen this year. Uh, of course, there's the overlay of what's happening in Europe, and that, as I said, is not entirely encouraging. But I do think that when you start taking public money out of the economy, it's a matter of judgment when you do it and the rate you do it. But as I say, um, I think unwittingly, the present government has ended up in a position that's not a million miles away from where we were going to end up, and that the deficit is likely to be eradicated at more or less the same time as we thought. Um, so I just think they, they were... It's not so much taking the public money out. Remember, a lot of the cuts are still to come through. The rhetoric they used in 2010... Um, undoubtedly had an effect on people's confidence. If you tell businesses and individuals the world is going to hell, then it's not surprising you think, well, I'll just keep my money under the bed for a bit. And I think that is a problem that, you know, I think they're now beginning to wake up to. You mentioned confidence a couple of times. Do you think there are policies then? I mean, you say it's the general tenor of the debate, but are there things that government ought to be doing to boost confidence, or do you think that's too much of an intangible for it to really be something? Well, I don't think there's any one thing. I mean, I, you know, I think if you, if you, maybe people here tell me different who run businesses and so on, if you look at the outlook, it depends what you produce, of course, if you, I think there, there are three things that I would look at. One is, is the American economy recovering? And the signs are at the moment is, it may be slow, but, you know, it is, and they're producing a slightly different policy to the, uh, to the ones that we're producing on this side of the Atlantic. What's happening in Asia? Well, lower economies are quick growing, but are still growing, but their growth is slowing down. And I do worry about this point I was making about China. You know, there's an awful lot of money in, around there that at some stage that's going to be rectified. Uh, and, you know, Asian economies had a propensity in the past to go faster into a decline than, you know, the, the more mature economies. And then, of course, the big thing also is in Europe. Remember, half of what we do produce goods and services go to Europe. Um, when, uh, if you really want to depress yourself, you ask yourself, where in Europe are our principal markets? And you discover that, you know, Greece, Portugal and Ireland are right up there at the top. You think, you know, this isn't so good. Um, you know, unless we see signs of recovery in Europe, then I think it's going to continue to depress things. But coming back to our country, it's partly language, but it's also, you know, I mentioned things that you might want to do. You know, I think we do need to do something about the squeezed middle and the incomes and so on. We do need to see, certainly need to arrest the, this growing problem of youth unemployment. But I think also just the signals you send in infrastructure, um, they are important. But uh, frankly, another set of announcements aren't going to do the trick. You know, governments announce things all the time. You know, and that's why people do actually quite become cynical. I think you need to see some evidence that something's happening. And you know, you know, conclude at this point. What we actually did in fiscal stimulus in 2008-9, in the scheme of things, was comparatively small. But it is the confidence thing. Let me give you one example, the car scrappage scheme. Um, we were under pressure to basically bail out the car industry because you know, the, the, you know, it, in 2008 it was in a pretty thin time and people were saying, look in America, they're subsidising wages, and in, in Germany they're subsidising wages and all the rest of it. We didn't do anything like that, but we did a very simple thing which is actually pretty cheap in the scheme of things and that was, uh, you know, to, it gave an incentive to cash in, you know, trade in your old car and buy a new one. It actually cost very little, but it made a huge difference to the confidence in the motor industry. And, you know, I mentioned the motor industry because that was something we were really good at 30 years ago. We still are. And the Nissan news this week is very, very good news. 
the names may have changed on the cars that we make, but actually this is something that we're quite good at. But that confidence measure, people in the motor industry will tell you, it made a big difference. So it's an example of where governments can do things, they're not putting squillions of pounds into it, but they're actually sending a signal. And, you know, uh, don't underestimate that. Okay, top left. Um, actually, middle left. Let's come, keep going down. Keep going down. Someone on the end here. Why don't we go there? Uh, Keisha Moore, I'm just an NHS doctor. Um, I wonder if you could talk a bit about the risks of too tight a welfare net developing a dependent um, population versus the need for redistribution of wealth. So, could you tell what do you mean by too tight a net? You mean too much, too little, what? Too much of a safety net right. developing a dependent population. Right. This is one of these very difficult issues. You know, when, you know, sometimes you know when you, you know politicians of all sides, you know, will will make some generalisations. When you're confronted with a family with no money and children, uh, as you know, if you're a doctor in the NHS, I'm sure you've come across people like that. Your generalised feelings or your feelings of how did they get to this position? It's all very well, but you actually have a real problem, you know, in your hands at the present time. Take housing benefit, for example. Intuitively, you know, it can't be right that the people who are working and you know struggling to make ends meet can't live in a big house, you know, in Kensington or London, for example. And there are people through the housing benefit system might allow them to do that. So I think fairness and perceived fairness is very important. Um, uh, I think when you get to arbitrary benefit caps, uh, you know, again, you know, th there is a, a superficial attraction to saying, you know, this is as far as I, you're prepared to go, and you know, maybe we have got, you know beyond that, but suddenly trying to bring things back are going to cause other problems which you, you know, which will have side effects that you know, people don't actually like. I think on the broad principle, I think it's certainly important that work pays, and I think some of the changes the government's making to child benefit are now stopping that from happening. I have huge doubts about this universal credit, because the only way it can possibly work with no losers is you, either, you put a hell of a lot of money into it, or else you do have people who lose a lot of benefit. Um, but I think you've got to have that incentive in the system that says you're better off um, uh, you know, in work than you're not. Um, I think the other area where I think we do need to look at, at a lot more, which is, which is much more, again, it's difficult, particularly in relation to single people, to make sure your incentives are in there early on, and also in relation to disability benefits, where you know, if you were inventing disability living, event, disability living allowance today, you would not have the system you've got at the present time. And similarly, in relation to incapacity benefit, uh, it, you know, I, from 27 years of experience as a member of parliament, I have people come to see me, and I, you know, vary between how on earth did this person not get help, and other occasions think, well, how on earth did you get through all this? So, you know, it is difficult, but, you know, you've got to keep a balance you know, in relation to, you know, those payments. Remember, though, the biggest thing that we welfare payments include things like pensions, <coughs> which people don't think of as welfare, but it is actually because that's what in, in the budget. I don't know if that helps you. There's no, I don't have an easy answer to it. Okay, I think we're coming down to the front. One person on the end, just there. Okay. Hi, I'm Harsha from Reading School. Uh, Alex Salmond has said that Scotland can um, stand on its, two, on its own two feet. And um, also that Scotland um, actually provides more, to the, uh, provides more to Britain than Britain provides to Scotland. As an um, anti-independence campaigner, what would you say in response to this? Well, I would always take what he says with a pinch of salt, no matter what it is. Um, <coughs> look, firstly, I don't think anyone could argue that Scotland or any other country can't go it alone. You know, 
you can. You may have to accept certain consequences as a result of that, but you can. Now, you know, I'm Scottish. I live in Scotland. I wouldn't argue that. You know, and, um, and equally, you know, I don't buy this, argue that, this argument that Scotland is a you know, subsidy junkie and so on. It depends how you do the sums. Like oil, for example, uh, you know, it, which been a, it hugely helped successive British governments. Most of it happens to be uh, within whatever way you divide it up in, in, in Scottish waters and so on. No, I think the, the correct way to look at this is, what is you know, from my point of view, what's best for Scotland? Now, I think we are better off being part of the United Kingdom. Uh, where we pool risk, you know, there are some years we gain, some years, you know, we, we you know, you, you might lose if you want to do those sums. Just as I think Britain is better off within the European Union, uh, where we have pooled sovereignty as well, as, as, as you know. Uh, and you know, when you actually look at what Alex Salmond is saying, and, and although that is something that varies from you know time to time, because I know he was here three weeks ago, his his policy, for example, on what currency an independent Scotland would have is now different to what it was three weeks ago. Three weeks ago, uh, we were going to be able to use the pound in the same way as Panama uses the dollar. Uh, but alive to the fact that people said, but that means your interest rates are fixed by a foreign government. His policy now is that we are going to enter into a stability and growth pact with the remaining part of the UK, uh, which will mean that we can't move uh, more than 3% in the structural deficit, which is remarkably like this pact they're signing in Europe at the moment. That means you, this independent Scotland would have to go cap in hand back to the remaining part of the UK and say, is our budget all right? Uh, and the other thing about a currency union is there's more than one person in it, and you've got to ask the other lot whether or not they want into it. Uh, and equally, you know, on the question of you know, lender of last resort, um, you know, I was debating with a very senior member of the SNP last week, and you know, at one point they weren't going to have a lender of last resort, which you know, is the proud owner of two banks which have come to public notice in recent years. That seemed a bit odd. Uh, and then it, you know, I was told that actually the Bank of England would be the lender of last resort, but we'd pay them some sort of annual fee. Now, can you imagine if you're the lender of last resort, and you say, what is your bank? And we say, well, RBS, have you ever made a claim in the last five years? <laughs> it, it's not too difficult to see that the, 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 the insurance premium might be on, on the hefty side. Uh, to be fair, Simon says that's not his problem. It's all the fault of London for letting it go, despite the fact that he actually, there is on record a letter from him to Fred Goodwin saying, I've looked at this deal, it's good for Scotland. And the only thing I'd say in passing is that if he did look at it, he's the only person that did, because it seems no one else did. Um, but um, I, I think... I think that the, this is a classic case of where being part of a larger whole helps you. RBS had a balance sheet that is bigger than our GDP. I was able to underwrite it and HBOS in a way that the Irish government couldn't underwrite its three banks because when people say, well, who's doing the underwriting? It's, you know, the Irish government just wasn't big enough. We mentioned Iceland earlier. So no, I, would, I don't argue you, could, you can't go it alone. What I do argue is that even Alex Salmond's model as of today... This isn't independence as I understand it. I mean, and now, you know, we're all part of the UK. You know, we can argue about, you know, how you divide up resources and so on. But the idea that I'd have to go to another government to get my budget approved, that seems a very odd idea of independence. And I could go on for ages. And we, I'm afraid, you, for those of you who are Scottish or taking interest in these matters, as we're not going to get a referendum until 2014, it will go on for ages. Um, why we're not having it until 2014? Well, there's one very simple fact. Um, Alex uh, Salmond, you know, would, you know, would no doubt boast the fact he is, you know, a very astute gambler. Uh, he knows full well he'd lose if he went now. That's why we're not having a referendum just now. That's why we're having it in 2014. But just wait and see whether or not he ever does hold a referendum. Okay, up on the, the far left, over, past down the row there to the yes, person hiding behind a computer screen.
Um, thank you. My name is Zhang Hong from China's Social Media. I want to ask a question on which Britain is at odds with the rest of Europe, which is the financial transaction tax. Um, I think this is very controversial because the proponents who say, number one, it's, um, it's, it's morally required to do so. And number two, it's uh, the, the, the transaction, uh, financial transactions are such a huge tax base, why not tap into it at the time of fiscal difficulties? But the opponents will say, um, number one, it's difficult to implement, and number two, it would drive a business out of the UK. So I wonder what, how you comment on both sides of arguments. Thank you. Okay, look, if, um, <clears throat> I'm not against it in principle, and you know, we have a stamp duty in this country, which is a, a similar sort of thing, um, but the only way a financial uh, transactions tax would work is if certainly the major parts of the, the world economy joined in. Um, and um, the Americans won't, the Canadians won't, uh, most Asian countries won't, uh, and you t there isn't a split between us and Europe, I think. Um, there is us and possibly France, uh, because I think you'll find that most other European governments won't do it, and they talk about it, but they won't do it, because, precisely because they don't want to be disadvantaged. In France, um, I know that President Sarkozy has said that he's going to do it. I know that the French banks have said, hold on, no you're not, um, you know, we'll wait and see. Um, I've obviously got to wait and see if President Sarkozy is still the president, but we also have to wait and see if he is, what he actually does about it. Um, you know, if any Chancellor of the Exchequer, any Finance Minister, <coughs> believe me at this time, if they thought they could get money from a group of people who, generally speaking, you know, the sympathy quotient is at a pretty low level, they would go for it. You know, the idea, you know, if I announced tonight, if I was in a position to announce anything, and I said, look, we're going to tax rich bankers, I mean, no one's going to stand up and say, oh, you mustn't, you know, don't be too hard on them. Um, of course it would be popular. I just, I just what, don't think it would work. And remember this, all you need to get around this is an atoll in the Caribbean on some sort of system for channeling money, and you're out of it. Uh, and I, I think this is, uh, this is, which is why I'm, I'm not terribly optimistic about it. And I, you know, I, I do think it's unfortunate. A lot of people have been led to believe that it's an easy thing to implement, you know, in terms of political agreement. It's not. So, one thing you might say that we've seen sort of two economic systems that failed. One was socialism, which collapsed and people backed off. They sold off nationalised industries, and then there was a period of relatively free markets and. As a consequence of that, people now are beginning to have doubts about that. It looks to me as if there's no real vision, no big picture. I mean, there were people camping outside St. Paul's till recently meant to encourage us to think about an alternative vision of how an economy can be run. And I, I'm very struck by the discussion this evening being, in a certain sense, very conventional. We've talked about conventional economic policy. But is, is it your sense there really is, at this point, no alternative big picture view? And do you think that has a consequence for the way politics is conducted? Because historically we've had <coughs> parties organised around competing principles, but it's hard to identify what those are at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, going back to the, the question that was asked uh, a while ago, you know, I think in the post-Second World War there was a greater ideological difference uh, between people who practiced the free market. Though actually, it wasn't as free as you conventionally in today's language call a free market. And, you know, uh, query whether, you know, the Soviet Union was socialist, you know, it may seem to me that in that country they swapped one form of oppression for another sort. And, you know, I, I think they used the word, but it doesn't mean there was too much egalitarian about it. If ever some, it was true that some people were more equal than others, that that was it. And it's certainly true that in certainly post-70s there had been a far greater consensus. 
you know, I, I think the, the argument actually today is, um, you know, what the role of government is, to what extent can it make a difference, should it make a difference, and so on. Well, I think that's striking, it was striking about the, you know, if you take the Occupy movement, is that there was no single covert demand. There was a you know, whole lot of, you know, different demands, and you know, it was almost like an amalgam of different things. Uh, you know, that's, it's, I'm criticising them particularly because I don't think there is actually anyone at the moment who is arguing for, quotes, a completely different system. You know, the capitalist system, one way or another, has survived for a rather long time. The question is how you manage it for the best advantage of people, how you manage things within your own country to ensure there is uh, a degree of equity, a degree of fairness, um, you know, what you do to you know, secure advantage for your country. You know, those arguments will continue, but, you know, I, and I don't have a simple answer, nor, you know, there's, I haven't lived through a crisis like this before, but, you know, there's been other crises where people say there must be a better way. And so far, you know, nobody has come up with an enduring better way. In particular, nobody's come up with a way of, um, uh, you know, at times dealing with the excessive exuberance of the human spirit, which can be very positive, but can also be very, very negative. Well, with apologies to those who, who are unable to get in, I have to now draw uh, the evening to a close. But I'm sure you'll agree with me that it's going to be an evening that lives on in the memory long afterwards. Extraordinarily candid and interesting comments. Uh, 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 from someone who was really involved intimately with all aspects of government policy over a prolonged period. I think we can all thank Alistair Darling for a very, very...